Hello, friends and listeners of The Chef's Monologue. Phil here. Mike and I are so excited to share with you this very special holiday episode with the one, the only, the icon, Darren Robinson. Darren is an improviser, a comedian, a writer, a producer. She wears so many hats, and we are so excited to have her here on the podcast. She has written a monologue perfect for this time of year, and we're just jumping out of our seats with excitement to show it to you. Before we get started, though, a couple words. We have a Patreon now. That's right. You heard me. We have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Chef's Monologue, where for just $5 a month, you can get all the reference roundups for each of our episodes. Or for $10 a month, you can get all those reference roundups, bi-weekly writing exercises based on tarot cards written by yours truly, and exclusive behind-the-scenes content. And then for $15 a month, you can get all of that good stuff and then also one feedback session per month with me and Mike on any script that you're working on. Our Patreon is a one-stop shop for writers to experience community, to build community, and your financial support will allow us to keep the podcast ad-free and pay every writer and actor that we have on the show. So you guys are the listeners. You make this possible. Thank you so much for tuning in. And without further ado, here is the one and the only Darren Robinson. Mr. Innkeeper, my name is Becky, and I'm here to visit my friend. She just had a baby, arguably the most important baby on earth. (laughs) Yeah, my gal pal Mary and I go way back. We went to Nazareth High School together, class of 16 BCE, go Hebrews! That's why I bought her this little doohickey right here. See, I took a piece of twine and tied it to some lamb's intestine and then blew air into the lamb's intestine. I call it a balloon because it's shaped like a ball and it floats like the moon. Balloon. Isn't it festive? (laughs) Oh, and I also sewed a little stuffed animal for the baby. It's Darius the donkey. You know, from those children's cartoons etched on the Bethlehem city walls. He's oh so funky, it's Darius the donkey. Yeah, that theme song never quite rhymed, but uh, children are stupid, so. (laughs) I'm sure your inn is very busy this time of year with people traveling for the census and the harvest and all that. So if you could just tell me where Mary is staying. Oh, The barn? She's staying in your barn? (laughs) Okay, very rustic. I like it. (laughs) I'll just go behind. Okay, thanks. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I am so sorry. I think I accidentally stepped on your bottle of frankincense. Let me pick that up for you. Here you (laughs) go. Wow. Okay, way to go, Becky. Major klutz moment. (laughs) Is your nose okay? Here, I have an extra piece of flaxen wool you can use to plug the blood. 
I usually use it for, well, for that time of the month, but it works for nosebleeds too. Dang, you got the expensive frankincense. You know, I got a guy who gives me a discount. All the dispensaries overcharge. It's a total ripoff, but this looks like primo shit. <laughs> Jeepers, you look like a prince or... Oh, all three of you are kings? How cute. Well, that explains the drugs, your highness. <laughs> Do any of you need a queen or... <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> um, but um, here's my scroll. Send me a pigeon sometime. Oh, Mr. Innkeeper, I'm a nice Jewish girl, but sometimes I like to read astrology. And it seems like Venus is always in retrograde for me. That's the love planet. I mean, Mary's got a husband now and a baby, and what do I have? Student loans from Hebrew school and crippling anxiety. <laughs> Can I tell you a secret? One thing a lot of people don't know is that before the Holy Spirit came upon her, he came to me first! I was the chosen one! Yeah, he came through my window at night, creepy little ghost, and he was all like, unto thee a child is born. And I was like, that's not possible. My boyfriend and I only do butt stuff. And then he was like, but this is God's plan. And I was like, that's not in my five-year plan, sugar. I want to be a shepherdess. And he was like, but you are a highly favored virgin. And I said, again, like I just told you, my boyfriend and I do butt stuff, which totally counts. And then he started freaking out, like, oh, what am I going to tell God? I'm supposed to come upon a virgin. And I was like, tell him about my friend Mary. She's a huge virgin. So the Holy Spirit should come upon her. If you want to pop a cherry, pop Mary. And the rest was history. I guess in Mary's case, nice girls finish first. Anyway, gotta go see this stupid baby. <laughs> Has anyone ever told you you're an incredible listener? Here's my scroll. Send me a pigeon sometime. Hello, and welcome to The, the Chef's Monologue, Monologue, a podcast where we, your hosts, Phil Kenner, and me, Michael Wilder Frizzell, interview our favorite writers to cook up original short monologues based on a recipe that we provide. Then, we interview those iconic writers about their process, thoughts on theater, film, TV, etc., and deliver it directly into your hungry ears. We are so happy to have on the show today, Darren Robinson. Hi, Darren. Hi! Yay! Yay! You just heard Darren perform her own, in her own monologue, Becky of Nazareth. Becky of Nazareth. Um, my new favorite character. <laughs> yeah, of all time. Tell me a little bit about Becky. How did you come to be? Well, I went to Catholic school for many, many years. And so the nativity is a huge part of that. Um, you know, any regular catholic goes to mass on christmas and easter it's all about beginnings and endings who cares about the middle of his life you know um <laughs> but the ending part was a little bit morbid for me so i'm like let's go to the beginning and one thing that i really like to do in a lot of pieces that i write 
I love writing about either like pop culture or historical events, but I like to imagine it like a painting where it's like, okay, we see this painting and there's something at the center of the painting that we're focused on. But what about this little cherub in the corner? Mm. How is how does he think about all of this stuff? Or like what about, you know, if it's like a procession with a king or whatever, like an illuminated manuscript, what about the peasant girl in the corner? Like how does she feel? And so I always like to look at things and be like, okay, how can I approach this from an angle that's not so obvious and so Mm. I thought about like well what if Mary wasn't the first pick for the Holy Spirit like what if she wasn't the first pick you know what if she was referred by someone else (laughs) not referred (laughs) you know what if someone connected with her on LinkedIn and said you're the virgin for this job yeah and exactly exactly and it was like you know I want you know someone wanted to give this to me but it didn't fit in with my five-year plan so let me just recommend my friend for this job and then the friend you know blows up and lives in infamy for eternity perhaps uh and then the other friends like wait a minute that could have been me like what was I doing with my life this whole time wow so it's about those opportunities on a deeper level it's about those opportunities that we pass up that we always regret okay amazing (laughs) and maybe at the expense of someone that we really love and care about like a friend or a relative and seeing them shine and grow and being like, oh, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. But I want to be happy for them. I want to be supportive of them. But that could have been me. I could have been the Virgin Becky. Literally the, the mother Virgin of God. Becky. Yeah. <laughs> and I love what you said about the um, the painting with the cherub. Like, what does that little cherub think in the corner? Because mm-hmm. that's, that's how we're experiencing history. We've all just lived through an unbelievable amount of history over the last however many years. Absolutely. And we all a little bit feel, I think, like... None of us are the main character of COVID, but we're all in the painting because yeah. we all experienced it. And so. And I love I love when those stories are elevated, though. And I think about um, like the diary of Anne Frank, that mm-hmm. journal. And it's like, OK, we know we know about the Holocaust. We know about what happened. We know the major players in that story in World War Two and everything. But here we have this beautiful piece of literature that's a journal from like a 13-year-old girl mm-hmm. who has to hide away for a couple years and her inner thoughts and how she had a little boyfriend named Peter and they would cuddle together and mm-hmm. um, she had a sister and, and parents and they were all together. You know, like just that was her life and it was a little slice of life, unfortunately a life that was cut tragically short. But think about how many other people had stories like that during that time that we didn't hear about on a more serious level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Someone who's entirely average experiencing an absolutely not average experience. Yeah. And telling those stories. And, and yeah. And we, we gloss over them, you know? And there's also, there's also something in the way that like, I feel like one of the classic dramatic criticism texts is like Aristotle. Right. And his, his like thing is that we have to write stories about aristocrats because like these sort of often men in his worldview are like, of exemplary of such exemplary character and are so so different from normal life that, that they're the only people worth writing stories about but in many ways what you've done i think is so much more exciting and interesting to me personally and not i'm sure i don't i'm not the first person to dunk on aristotle but it's like the, you know the majority of people out there are average right that's the point of average being average is that mm-hmm. you're like everybody else but there's something about 
if you have a story that's accessible, that's just like me, like we, in some senses, we are like Becky of Nazareth, like everybody, right? Like yeah. if you, you know, someone, if a Holy Spirit came to you in the middle of the night, you'd be like, sorry, no, <laughs> like, and, and like, go, like talk to Becky, this talk to my friend. This seems like a or, lot right now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of pressure. I'm not up to it. Um, I'm curious to know, you answered one of the questions we already, we love asking, which is what do you usually write and how does this fit in with what you usually write? Mm -hmm. But I'm curious to know what a piece of media, teenage media was that was influential to you, something you listened to or watched as a teenager that you were like, this is culture. (laughs) Um, Oh, well, we talked about earlier before this we talked about charlie kaufman Mm -hmm. and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind that was the movie that made me want to write because i was like oh my gosh you can tell a story like this like it was so different from anything i'd ever seen just in the way it was told um how it like kind of threw chronology out the window how you thought it was one story and then it's really another story happening how even the side characters who are like okay what are these people doing like this guy's asleep and they're just monitoring him but then you realize they're also really important and they have their own story that's going on that's going to affect the main story I think is like really beautiful and also just some of the lines in that like Kate Winslet being like, I'm just a fucked up girl looking for my own peace of mind. Mm. Don't give me yours or something like that. I mm. love that. But even um, she talks about when they first meet, which you find out is not the first time they met. Um, spoiler alert. But she dyes her hair all these different colors. And she says, I apply my personality in a paste. Ooh. And that line just stuck with me. I'm like, oh, dang. Like a paste physically because she's like dyeing her hair but then also metaphorically because it's like I think of a paste as something very thick and gooey and and her character is just so thick and gooey her character is like a lot you know and so she would be a paste you know Mm -hmm. that's a paste of a person um but I love that and so that to me was culture yeah that that to me was culture I love that I remember the first time I saw Adaptation. I was not a teenager. I was 24, 25. I don't remember. I saw Adaptation and I was like, holy shit. You can do this with stories. Mm -hmm. You can like tell a fake story next to a real story and then they all become the real story. Mm -hmm. And also Meryl Streep is there the whole time. (laughs) Like walking through a bog. Yeah, my friend Benny and I did a like a Meryl Streep movie marathon during COVID. We would Amazing. just like FaceTime and watch Meryl Streep movies. Um and Adaptation was one of them. And and it was by far the weirdest one we watched. And we after it was over, we were like, I wonder how she felt being in it, which is, you know, obviously not me trying to start shit with Charlie Kaufman, but um it was just such a bizarre thing for her to do. Absolutely. Oh, another Meryl Streep that was really essential to me was the Devil Wears Prada. Oh, let's talk. Let's talk about the Devil Wears Prada. The Devil Wears Prada came out when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I saw it with my dad and my stepmom because my stepmom had read the book. Mm -hmm. But also my stepmom had a subscription to Harper's Bazaar, um, which is like the British version of Vogue with but it's not British Vogue. It's like another big, thick tome of a fashion magazine that's like hundreds of pages. And like her rule was like, okay, like once we get it in the mail, like I get to read it first, but then you get to read it after me. And so I would get her hand me down Harper's Bazaar 
issues and I got really into fashion not practically speaking because I was still shopping at like limited too but like <laughs> theoretically I was into like fair I had a Ferragamo mind uh, a rack room budget <laughs> Not limited to. Yeah. All the it, pink, all the pink. All the pink, all the big flowers, sunflowers. But anyways, so I loved that. And we saw that movie and I really liked I mean, every time I watch it, I notice something new about it that I love. But I just love how complex Meryl Streep's character is in that. And that she's like, okay, she's kind of a dragon lady. She's a boss bitch. She's not very nice. But also considering the pressures that she has on her and how she really is like the only person who can do what it is that she does at the level that she does it. Mm -hmm. Thinking about that and the strain that it's put on all like three of her marriages that she's had and Mm -hmm. her relationship with her daughters. I'm like, wow, this is what it is to be a working woman. Mm -hmm. As a 10 year old, I'm like, wow, (laughs) this is what it's like to be a woman who works. You're like, I get it. I get it. I get it. Totally. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, can I cut my hair and dye it gray, please? And say, that's all. Um, But no, I love I love that movie, too. And like now I'm actually teaching that this quarter Mm -hmm. to um, I'm teaching undergrads screenwriting and I'm teaching that this quarter as the hero's journey. Yes, because we don't see. I mean, it plots it like plot wise, it totally follows the hero's journey to the point where it's like the magical thing that the hero gets, like the the aid that helps them. Like um, Luke Skywalker gets the force and like Paul Atreides and Dune, you know, has the spice and all of that stuff. And Neo takes the pill and that's like the magical thing. Mm-hmm. But for Andy, it's the closet. You know, yes. going into the closet and getting this full makeover, like yes. that like helps her step into her own and then enhance her other powers with knowing all these fashion people and being able to wheel and deal. And then in a way, Miranda, who is Meryl Streep, is her shadow in the same way that Luke Skywalker is constantly fighting the urge against becoming like his father, Darth Vader. Andy is constantly fighting the urge against becoming like Miranda Priestly. Wow. To the point where even Miranda calls it out and Andy's like, I, she's like, everyone wants to be like us. And Andy's like, I don't want to be anything like you. And then Miranda says, well, you are. Like you, the same thing I did to Nigel betraying him, you did to Emily. Mm-hmm. And if people listening don't know what any of this means, watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but basically Miranda checks her and is like actually you're you're already like me you're Mm -hmm. already going down this path of being a dragon lady so it happened to you it happened to you and then andy at that choice at that time makes the choice and says no this isn't me and then that's when she throws her phone in the fountain and rejects that life Mm -hmm. but it's beautiful and it is the hero's journey and i feel like people dismiss chick flicks as being just like fluff Mm -hmm. but that movie has so much substance to it it talks so much about integrity and like especially as artists because andy's like a journalist which i think is a form of art being a writer in that way but even fact-based writing but still like as artists i feel like we encounter a lot of things where we could forfeit our um integrity in order to get ahead and that's like a constant battle and like keeping your values and being like what are the stories that I want to tell who are the audiences that I want to reach mm-hmm. who are the types of organizations that I want to work with that I know are not harming people 
and we feel such a such an intense sense of ambition Mm -hmm. which is also i think something that movie touches on and a little bit about how andy becomes miranda which is like you wanted something and then you did what you had to do to get what you wanted Mm -hmm. and that's not that's exactly where i am i'm just like one or two more decades later after achieving those things but all i did was want something try to get it and then win and that's exactly what you did and you did you did things you're not proud of to to get there and that's why we're the same it doesn't matter that you want to be a journalist and i love fashion it matters that we both wanted stuff and didn't care about the collateral that wanting caused and sometimes being an artist feels like that Mm is like I want something so badly. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of see what happens when you put that wanting into turbo and you're like, okay, if I really want it, I can do it, but I gotta, some stuff has to suffer because of it. Yeah. Yeah. And being okay with that or not being okay with that and right. making that decision for yourself. And throwing the phone in the fountain. And throwing the phone in the fountain. Yeah. Did, um, did you get to see The Devil Wears Proud of the Musical? I did not. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't. Uh, I heard some things. <laughs> well there's not a microphone recording you ever right, yeah, said so like tell we, it. no um and I, th- I think it's it's going to broadway i think it's going to do the damn thing it's it's going to do it but many have done that too <laughs> <laughs> it's not you're like it's not the first show that will ever be on broadway there were other musicals before it let me just say diana the musical is on broadway <laughs> diana the musical now on netflix now on netflix but also like was still on Broadway while it was on Netflix um even with all of the commentary there and I'm not saying anything mean about any of these shows I'm putting that on record I'm not saying anything (laughs) bad about anything I'm just saying I've heard things and I'm just saying I saw Escaped Margaritaville when it had its out-of-town tryout in Chicago before it transferred to Broadway and then closed shortly after (laughs) shortly thereafter it closed um, we love Jimmy Buffett, though. We, oh, we love Jimmy we Buffett. Love we we love to pretend we're better than Jimmy Buffett. And then Jimmy Buffett comes on, and suddenly I'm, you know, in my mid-50s. I hold a margarita. And I'm With wearing, a Hawaiian shirt. I was like, you <laughs> nail on the head. Nail on the head. Speaking of artistry, you are an improv artist, a comedian, a producer. I'm curious to know how that fits in with your solo writing mm-hmm. and how they inform each other. Wow, that's such a good question. I feel like, well, sometimes when I'm improvising, uh, I'll play a character that I'm like, this person is really fun in a scene. And I'll be like, oh, let me write down what are some things that I said in this scene that I thought were really fun. And then I'll take that and I'll expand upon it and I'll make it bigger and bigger um, until it becomes a solo piece or a monologue that I can then perform when I'm doing variety shows and stuff like that or showcases. So that's kind of how that starts. But I feel like improv has made me like a, a better writer in that you're editing on your feet. You're deciding on your feet in real time, like what is pertinent to this scene. Also, when it comes to comedy, too, there is a reflex to like just say something that's funny because you know it'll make the audience laugh but it's like okay but is this funny and is this something that's going to move the scene forward Mm. or like tell us more about the characters like to me a joke should do like three things it should tell something about the environment it should tell something about a character or it should push the plot forward and if it's not doing those things then it's kind of a non sequitur and it deserves to be on the cutting room floor mm. but it took a while to get to that point in my writing and, and even with my improv like it's not always like that but like 
I train at Second City Conservatory and they do an improv to sketch model where it's like, okay, you'll come up with a concept. You'll write out a beat sheet where it's like, okay, beat one is always we're setting the given circumstances to heighten it. Three or two is the first weird thing. Three is you heighten that. Four is you heighten that even more. Mm. And the final beat is a twist that usually is you're out of the scene. And, you know, when you're improvising through these things, sometimes you might like, you know, go on these little tangents, which are really fun. And those might become separate scenes um, and might become material that you want to use like as a solo piece or stand up or whatever. But the, the goal of it is to like improvise a scene and then get through all those beats and then start chopping away at the parts that are like, this is funny, but this is not relevant mm. to like moving this forward and getting us out in three to five pages, right? which is what a sketch should be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think that's just... I don't that was a long answer but that's like part of my thing I also feel like improv one thing uh Erin one of our uh faculty core faculty members in our MFA program and she's also my advisor uh she said you know you're one of the best people in your cohort at really taking an axe to your scripts and really changing them in a big drastic way from workshop to final draft and I feel like part of that is because as an improviser like you can't be precious about anything Mm -mm. you like you go like I go and I do shows and I'm like cool like either the audience loved it or maybe they were like kind of tepid about it but that was that cool the show is over if we have notes the notes are more skills based like uh I don't know boys stop steamrolling the girls (laughs) or like Mm -hmm. or like oh like uh I think we need to mix up the if we're, I'm doing a music comedy show it's like we need to like play with genre more and so like we did two slow songs back to back so like being aware of that and being like we should should have done something more up tempo or whatever or we should have gotten out of this scene quicker and but those are all like skills based things versus like uh content based things because ultimately it's like okay you can talk about the content as much as you want but we're never going to do this show again right. and so it's very like ephemeral ephemeral English it's very ephemeral it's of the moment and I think with when I write too I'm very much like okay this is a draft and I'll date it at the top of the page I'm like this is the draft for today and like I'll make a copy of it and it's like all of this could stay one word of it could stay and the rest of it could go but just not being precious about things and that really frees you up to explore That's so cool to hear because, you know, when I think about my stuff, I think I am much more precious and it's much harder for me to hack. Like the idea of taking an axe to my script is like just, you know, I'm tensing up listening to you because it's like, but there's something so liberating and exciting to me just hearing you talk about that volume and, and sort of that approach of improv and and just being like, well, it's it's happening once. And, you know, I don't know. There's something I'm struggling maybe to articulate it right now. It's just listening to you. I'm like, oh, I can just, I'm so inspired to go home to my script that I'm writing, working on right now and being like, who cares? Like, I can just, why, why can't I throw out massive chunks of it? Because if it doesn't work, there's no point over agonizing over why isn't this working? It's like, just start over. And like, there's so much, there, there, I don't know. There's, there's, there's... But the beautiful thing about computers is that you literally can just make a copy of the file. Mm-hmm. And that's your new copy. And that's like my axe copy where I'm like, I can get rid of whatever I want. But I still have like a PDF of the version Mm -hmm. that I've already written Mm -hmm. where I'm like, okay, this is still saved somewhere. If I want to reincorporate these elements, they're not gone forever. Mm -hmm. So I think so many of us start as performers. You're, you know, whether you're in middle school, high school, college, after, it doesn't matter. 
your first exposure to this kind of stuff is typically because you're in the musical or because you are acting in a friend's film, whatever it is. And then you go to be a writer and what you've learned as an actor is that like every word counts and that you have to put a emphasis, not emphasis, you have to put an intention behind every single thing you're saying, especially if you study Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. they're like every fucking word in that stuff. Comma. Comma. Every (laughs) semicolon is extremely important. It it determines where you breathe. It determines the the emphasis. It determines the tone. It determines the Mm punchline. But then you go to be a writer and you have to like throw that away. You have to like, untrain that out of you and it's like every word can't be super important because then you'll just spend and we've all done this like truly a literal hour editing three lines four lines one page whatever it is and you 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 futz and you're like oh no but if if they say the word and instead of but this line will mean something totally different and it's like no cut the scene cut the scene babe like just cut the scene (laughs) there's something that i'm just thinking about now and sort of speaking in draft is that like you know for me personally like going to grad school was was in my mind like sort of an arrival it was like i've done i've been doing writing not really professionally because you know producing my plays but i've I've sort of been committing to this for at least three years before grad school i show up in grad school it's a two-year program okay great i you know i'm gonna i'm I'm now like i have a shiny degree because i've just graduated and like i'm professional writer and in some senses that's a I'm limiting myself because that makes me more scared or more kind of um, precious about the stuff that I write. Whereas I think to your point, what you're just talking about is that like that comes from a unique background, which is an actor and having to feel like everything that I write has to be Shakespeare, has to be kind of passed down from on high and has to be the greatest thing. But I think what you're saying as well, Darren, is that there's something so liberating from the comedy world where it's like we're all throwing shit up against the wall and it's a volume game and that like everything you're going to write is obviously is not that it it doesn't sound that intelligent when I'm saying it out loud, but like everything that we write isn't going to be Shakespeare. Right. Mm -hmm. But and the the trick is just doing the the numbers game, the volume to like uh, sort of sorting through the chaff to find out what's actually good and what works. Absolutely. Uh, I'll give you volume. Yeah. When I I'm a contributor for The Onion and like I haven't really kept up with it as much since being in grad school. I still get the emails to submit. So I, I don't know. But um, there was a time there where I was like getting published like once or twice a month, once or twice a month. But I was submitting like three times a week, mm. like five. Mm. Jo- I was submitting like 15 jokes a week for each prompt. I would submit five jokes, but I would write like 20. So I was writing like 60 jokes a week and I would maybe wow. get one published in a month. 60 jokes a week times four a week. So like 240 jokes a month and maybe get one published. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Holy and shit. And the funny part about it was the ones that got published, some of them, like the first four jokes, I was like, yes, impeccably written, you know, <laughs> went to my thesaurus, chose the right word, like you were saying, Phil, like the exact right word out of a list of words that all mean the same thing, you know, putting the punchline as close to the end of the line as possible, all these things that you know about joke writing. And then the fifth one, I was like, okay, I have a deadline in like 15 minutes. What's like a fifth joke I can submit? Just I, I would poop it out. I would literally <laughs> defecate this joke out. Speaking of thesaurus, <laughs> defecate. I would defecate this Burn. joke out. And then I'd get an email like two days later like, oh, Onion Selects. We chose your joke. And it was the one that I pooped out. Oh, my God. Like some of them were so dumb. Like there was one. It was like, what to do if uh, someone is not texting you back? It was like an article. Mm. 
And they picked like five of our jokes to go in the article and they were all like stupid pieces of advice. And so one of the ones I defecated out <laughs> that week was mail them a, a charger so they can charge your phone and then get back to you. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, that's so stupid, right? Like that, <laughs> that's so stupid. Like, yeah, mail, like put a charger in the mail, go to the post office, mail it to someone, so they can charge your phone, because obviously their phone is dead if they're not texting you back. That's the only right? thing you that know? makes sense, yeah. And so that was just like really dumb. And the other ones, I was like, these are so clever. Like, I'm Mount Cleverest right now. And then, no, you did not just say Mount Cleverest. <laughs> I love Mount Cleverest. That's like, oh, that's my favorite catchphrase. That's brilliant. Yeah. I want to hear, we got to do your secret ingredient and we got to do your one minute stand, but I just want you to talk just a little bit about Shamilton, if you're willing. Yeah. So did you get to see it? I did get to see it. Okay. What, what did they do that week? What did they do that week? They did a musical about Tom Cruise. (gasps) It was about Tom Cruise being a short king. The whole thing was an improvised hip hop musical, a la Hamilton, of course. Mm -hmm. And they did a musical all about Tom Cruise who wanted to open a bakery. That was his motivation. Oh, I love it. (laughs) He was like, I don't want to be a movie star anymore. I want to do a bakery. Yes. And so. Yeah. Oh, so Shambleton. um, So Phil got to see Shambleton, but it was after I'd already left for the summer to do an internship. Um, But Shambleton is a show. It's at Second City and Donnie Skybox. We're every Friday at 830. We have a show. We're recording this on a Friday, so I actually have a show tonight. Um, But the premise is it's like Hamilton, but we ask the audience for suggestions of a Wikipedia famous person. We call them Wikipedia famous. So Mm. someone like a historical figure, um, a famous person, a celebrity, uh, even a fictional character who's famous enough to have a Wikipedia page. And so we have everyone vote. We pick three from the audience and then we have the audience vote um, across the three and whichever one they select, we do a full length Hamilton style musical and we've actually I don't know if we did this back when you went but like we actually started a new thing where like the music director does dun 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 and they play through they play like the chords of Alexander Hamilton oh my god and then the first person is always like how does a and then they launch into a rap oh that's brilliant because we were like we need it to be it was cool that was a hip-hop musical it was cool like we wear these little colonial outfits and stuff but um I think the thing that really like solidified it as like Shamilton is like having the how does a and then launching into that how does a Scientologist I love it but that's that's it's fun because I also it is really good practice with plotting for me like as a screenwriter and we all work together on this, but it's like opening number. We just lay out a bunch of facts about this person mm-hmm. that we have called from the audience. So when we select the person, we're like, tell us three things about this person or more. And we can ask them questions. And then we just start throwing out facts about this person. And then that's the opening number. And then there's always an I want song. Like any musical, the protagonist has a scene where they're like, this is what I want. The so Tom Cruise wants to open a bakery. Mm-hmm. And there's always, who is the villain in that one? I'm oh, curious. It was another movie star or a baker. I don't remember, but they had, they had to have a bake off. Um, <laughs> he was in Scientology. It might've been L. Ron Hubbard. I love that. I don't actually remember. L. Ron was there at some point. Or um, John Travolta, maybe? Or? No, who was it? <laughs> famous, oh, God. Famous, famous night the actor who played it, they were incredible. I can't remember. I was sufficiently um, 
inebriated i'm Boozed. sure yeah no and, and <laughs> there's a bar right outside all the theaters and it was just i remember like 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 fully collapsing in half in laughter like head between my knees like crying because i couldn't believe that they were coming up with this on the spot yeah yeah and we were always so last week the show we did was about queen elizabeth the second oh my god and the first scene was uh she was young she was her dad had just died and she was about to ascend the throne and so we were thinking because like in the suggestions before we were like who are some people who would be your enemies we we're like oh margaret thatcher diana megan markle all these people but then yeah. we took it back to the beginning of her timeline so we're like who would be her enemy and then backstage i saw her and she's like i want to be on the throne and i was like i'm going to be winston churchill and i'm going to be like no more monarchy we're going to abolish the monarchy she cannot a woman cannot sit on the throne again and so that's but it's like in real time like we're watching each other on stage and then we're like in the corner whispering like oh okay she said this oh okay great her her villain has to be this person and this is what i want and then we go out and we do the the villain song which is about like we have to get lizzie you know right and you you rap improv live in the moment Mm -hmm. on the stage you're rhyming too. I mean, the, yeah, the rhyming. Oh my yeah. god! Well, the secret to that, the secret sauce to that, is you find you. Th- it's like backwards thinking. So I always think about like what is the payoff of this? Like what is the punchline? And then so I think about that, and then I go back, and then I'm like, what is the setup? Mm. So wow. one time we did Kim Possible in rehearsal, <clears throat> and one of my friends was like, oh, I want what's the sitch to be like the payoff mm-hmm. and so it's something the first line was like um yeah kim she's my main old bitch like <laughs> that was bad <laughs> yeah kim she's my main bitch she's up here like what's the sitch you know mm-hmm. and so like you have to think backwards about it that's incredible you start with the end rhyme and then you end with the start rhyme in your head but again you're doing this in real time in real yeah. time <laughs> yeah unbelievable and you're already thinking about the next line while you're rapping mm-hmm. it's it's like the thing where you're like patting your head and rubbing your tummy oh yeah this this episode is very likely to come out around the holiday season um and so if you're a tourist and you're in chicago or is Hamilton happening other places, or is it just in Chicago? We have a cast in New York that's Fantastic. at Asylum Theater. Beautiful. In New York. So if you're in New York or you're in Chicago, yes. get your tickets to Shamilton. Yes. This is coming from someone who saw it and who laughed their little pants off. <laughs> Pee my little diapy. Go see Shamilton. <laughs> um, and with that, now on the topic of diapies... We would love to hear your secret ingredient. Are you ready to reveal it to us? Yes. Is right. there a drum roll or drum something? Drum roll, please. Secret ingredient. Catholicism. Catholic- <laughs> there we go. There we go. Really everyone's secret ingredient all the time, whether or not they know. Because Jesus lives within us all. <laughs> even, even Jewish people. Even, even this Jewish podcaster. Which Jesus is actually, really uh, was the number one Jew when you think about it. He was. A very good Jewish boy. Yeah. Loved his mother. Are you, are you Jewish? <laughs> no. no. Uh, at least not in a way that matters. Um, fantastic. Catholicism. Is your one minute stand going to be Catholicism? Oh God, no! <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, you heard uh, it here first. Darren Robinson, absolutely with um, no qualifications, endorses the Catholic Church. <laughs> yep, that's it. End of episode. No, we would love to hear 
your one minute stan this is a segment on the show where we invite our writer to give a one minute positive rant about someone or something a theater a person a company um living or dead famous or not famous who they think is amazing um it's an untimed minute so take as long as you need but without further ado darren robinson's one minute stan okay i'll be brief um, my theater, I went to uh, stand a theater company. It's called Bug House Theater. It's a great uh, venue. It's so cute. It's in Irving Park. Uh, both Phil and Mike have been there because I hosted my birthday variety show there last February. But it's just such a chill vibe. It's BYOB. They have a lot of wonderful programming like uh, Improvised Survivor. They have a variety show every Thursday called Everything is Fine. Um, I co-produce a show there every other Wednesday called Ha 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 La La La. That is a music comedy variety show. It's all musical comedians. It's a very just welcoming, cozy space. They have quotes up on the wall from like James Baldwin and Bjork and or Bjork and um, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut just about the nature of artists and what they're supposed to do in the world. Um, and it's run by mostly women, which is amazing. And they have a wonderful show called Forward in Comfortable Shoes, which features uh, femme and non-binary performers being able to do their thing. And they say it's because, you know, Ginger Rogers had to do everything that Fred Astaire did, but backwards in high heels. Mm-hmm. And because of all of, you know the patriarchy and whatnot and they're saying we're eliminating that we're allowing people to do what they want forward in comfortable shoes which i think is really incredible so definitely if you're in town if you're in chicago check out the bug house which is off of the irving park brown line oh my god amazing yeah. forward with comfortable shoes yeah, yeah. I, that's incredible it took you explaining it and then i was like oh that's i get it yeah backwards in heels this is you're brilliant this was brilliant this monologue is just it had me Unable to breathe yeah. here in this room, trying to record you, trying my hardest not to laugh. Um, so thank you, Darren, for being here, for talking to us, and yeah. for giving us Becky from Nazareth. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It's also really good to see you guys after graduation and see that you're not emaciated, starving artists. <laughs> no, not yet, at least. <laughs> living the dream. Yeah, living the it dream. It gives me hope for graduation. <laughs> it comes sooner than you think. Um <laughs> Darren Robinson, thank you so much. Thank Thank you so much. Hi, it's Phil again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Chef's Monologue. We have been honored to spend the last 40 minutes or so in your ears. So thank you for having us. Something we're going to start doing is reading the recipe that we gave the writer at the end of each episode. And that way you can, because you loved the episode so much, Go back and listen to it and try to hear for some of these things. Now, keep in mind, not every writer uses every ingredient. We tell the writers, use, you know, seven out of these 10 ingredients, and then your eighth ingredient will be your secret ingredient. So you've just heard Darren's secret ingredient. So, you know, that's one of them. And I'm going to say 10 ingredients, and it's up to you to decide which seven she chose. All right, you ready? Number one, something locked outside. Number two, something humiliating. Number three, a pre-21st century children's cartoon character. Four, a living thing undergoing a seasonal transition. Five, a moment of sacrilege. Six, a real fact about either Renaissance Italy or the planet Venus. Seven, a balloon. Eight, the sound of something you would hear on a farm. Nine, the sound of something being crushed by a foot. Ten, the sound of aging machinery. And then, of course, 
a secret ingredient. So give the episode one more listen, give us five stars, share the episode on your Instagram, subliminal messaging, subliminal messaging, please do all those things. Um, But in all seriousness, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Chef's Monologue.